Hello to all of our listeners and welcome to Voltech Tech Talks podcast episode seven. Today we'll be discussing fake news and the filter bubble. I'm joined by Shabazz Hashmi. How are you doing today, Shabazz? I'm doing pretty well, John. How are you doing? Very well, thanks. So I guess we might start off by formally defining fake news, otherwise known as junk news, pseudo news, or alternative facts. Basically, a Taken from Wikipedia, a form of news consisting of deliberate disinformation or hoaxes spread via traditional news media or online social media. So the topic of fake news has gained a lot of traction over the, the last couple of years, namely to, due to attention placed on it regarding issues such as election fraud and meddling in modern democracies. We see a lot of it circulating on social media platforms yeah did you hear about that uh court case that happened three days ago it was basically all of these big tech companies all of the ceos uh versus i guess the american version of parliament yeah i did and uh, yeah but they had apple facebook twitter and google yeah yeah so i watched all six hours um and it was great stuff Really. But one of the most interesting parts was that with the fake news, um, there are some Republican, I guess, members of Parliament or Congress, as they call them there. And these Congress members, um, the Republicans, they were really grilling, I guess. I think it was. Yeah, they were grilling Google over the dissemination of information and which sources Google actually prioritizes, which somewhat links to fake news because part of fake news is how it actually gets distributed, right? And they were alleging that a lot of Republican news sources were just being blocked by Google on a blacklist. It was actually uh, pretty interesting stuff. Okay, and so is there a lot of validity to that, have we found? Um, it's interesting. Um, so... Google did admit that they did have a blacklist and there was some evidence that um, that Republican news sites just were actually on that. Yeah, so there have been like, I think the NY Post, the New York Post reported on this, that an ex-Google engineer says Glitch may have exposed conservative blacklist. Um... But again, I guess it's kind of just like hearsay almost because it's ex-engineers and politicians. Yeah, could potentially just be a cover-up, I suppose, suggesting that a glitch was responsible for blacklisting a lot of these outlets. But yeah, hearsay, as you said, so it's impossible to really... Yeah, really report on correctly. Yeah. We've heard, I've heard of a lot of similar things um, basically on YouTube particularly as well, owned by Google, yes. Um, but YouTube is a one-stop shop for a lot of people who fancy themselves as news junkies, I suppose, but get it namely from YouTube these days, which I think is a significant subsection of the entire human population who has internet. So that's a pretty significant 
I guess, statement from Google. And they um, demonetize a few of these channels. PragerU is one such channel that I'm seeing. Basically, this um, conservative channel that like poses as a university slash educa educative channel. But PragerU, so P-R-A-G-E-R-U. Wow. There's like an entire lawsuit on the thing. YouTube faces dueling lawsuits from a conservative group and an LGBTQ plus group, both of which argue that the video site discriminates against them. No one is happy with YouTube's content moderation policies. Yeah, but you can't like please everyone now, can you? I think YouTube's policies are very interesting because the way YouTube is actually wired, it actually, it's made to favor fake news in a sense because youtube's algorithms are based on um are based on engagement right and usually fake news is very easy to engage with because it's clickbaity almost and then you need um you need some form of manual intervention and that's where youtube or even twitter right twitter um marked some of trump's tweets as uh misleading and inaccurate so maybe we could discuss the fine line of what we consider fake and where, I guess, truth really comes from, I guess. Like, is it what the tech company thinks is true or is it what the majority think is true? Yeah, these platforms have enormous reach. So I suppose one might argue that they have a sort of duty of care to provide only verifiably true information and not disinformation yeah but then the question is how do you tell that do you i know that there are entire projects dedicated to creating algorithms um f uh, to detect fake news so there's things like fake news detectors um some algorithms even have been told to like outperform humans it's like deep learning artificial intelligence that you can just throw a lot of um a lot of articles into and it will tell you the likelihood that they're actually fake news or not when they're pretty effective <sighs> at it are they apparently they are fake news um yeah so you've got some supervised ai algorithms and you've got like an entire uh, it's actually very very interesting okay and that supervised learning though do we have to we probably have to be somewhat worried about having the inherent biases in there as well though yeah exactly but then uh, the subject in itself like there's bias in news uh, information is bias just by existing because i bet you it doesn't conform with everyone's i guess epistemologies right there are different sources of knowledge they can be from anywhere fake news is a highly contemporary and important issue due to the ramifications it has on public awareness of issues but mostly due to the unjust influence it may have on democracy at the World Economic Forum in 2013, a report titled Global Risks 2013 was released, the 8th edition. Some takeaways from this report include the various benefits and risks of social media. All that I'm about to say refers to this article, and it has been difficult to predict the ways in which new communication technologies will shape society. Facebook has reached more than a billion active users in less than a decade of existence, and Twitter has attracted more than 500 million active users within seven years. 
That is absolutely insane. So you've go, you're telling me that there are a billion people on Facebook just throwing their news out into the void for other people to consume. And yeah, such reach is unparalleled throughout human history, right? No, nothing has ever been such a common denominator in human households as these products right now. And and you kind of and you kind of think these kinds of like I guess groups of people this would be the breeding ground for stuff like movements and activism, right? Absolutely, yeah. They're prevalently used in activism. Uh, an example that was used in this report was the Arab Spring, so the series of anti-government protests and uprisings and armed rebellions that began across much of the Arab world in the 2010 decade. So Facebook and Twitter as well as other major social media platforms, played a fairly key role in the movement of Egyptian and Tunisian activists in particular. Nine out of ten activists responded to a poll suggesting that they used Facebook to organise protest and spread awareness. So that's just testament to how important it is for social movement, right? Yeah, definitely. Like, uh, I was reading this Business Insider article earlier. Um, and in the Business Insider article, they're discussing how issues that usually wouldn't come to surface, um, like, I guess, police brutality, racism, and sexual harassment, now they've become the forefront of national conversation, you know? It's, um, it's actually, like, shocking, because these things would usually happen behind closed doors, there would be a bit of a stigma to it, and just the prevalence of Facebook and Twitter, um, it allows you to, like, topple these pre-existing societies with these strong leadership structures you know uh, i guess you can also have this other side to it as this uh, article discusses you can have this broadcast of empowerment and breaking i guess these um systematic issues in these societies but at the same point um you can totally use these platforms to broadcast propaganda propaganda because I mean, as it's fake news, right? Um, you can distribute misinformation just as easily as you can spread real information. Yeah, exactly. I think that's a lot of what the... This issue has been stirred up in the last few years because um, although the veracity of it has been somewhat tested, I think there's a significant presence of thought that the Russian... There was a lot of Russian interference in the 2016 US election via Twitter and Facebook-based bots. And that, that there was fake news associated with that. And that there have been too few, like there has been not enough in terms of efforts made to remedy these issues. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely very interesting. Um... And I guess it leads to such, I guess, a divisiveness within a country. So you can see um, with this fake news one, um, you have politicians on both sides saying one side of the politicians arguing that, yes, fake news and there was massive like Russian meddling. You've got defense ag agencies saying there was definitely meddling, right? Um, but then I guess... When you come to actual, like, the Oval Office in 2016, um, Trump dismissed the idea completely, according to the New Yorker article. He said that the Russian interference um, was a hoax. It was a made-up story. Uh, he went as far as calling it a witch hunt, you know? Like, cr crazy words coming out of the uh, mouth of a U.S. president. 
uh, let alone on something so nuanced and widely accepted, you know? It's it's definitely, fake news is definitely, um, has the grounds to be very, very divisive, whether it be um, for elections or not. Yeah, and I mean, it's become somewhat apparent that Donald Trump has like reformed the definition of fake news to suit his preference to a degree. And that whilst decreeing that everything that is not in his favor is fake news, he also only really listens to outlets that he has a significant preference for because they favor him as well. And so this is also kind of shifting the global discussion of fake news, generally speaking, as well. Um, but yeah, on the point of the Arab Spring we were discussing earlier, um, in rec- recognizing the influence that social media platforms were having on the civil unrest, there were obviously significant attempts to elevate internet censorship in these regions. So in Egypt, Libya, and Syria, the populations witnessed complete internet shutdowns as their governments attempted to quell protests. And in Tunisia, the government hacked into and stole passwords from their citizens' Facebook accounts. In Saudi and Bahrain, bloggers and netizens were were arrested and some are alleged to have been killed. These developments have raised, I guess, discussion regarding the issue of internet access as a human right, as a basic utility. Another thing that's been made very apparent through COVID-19 as well. Yeah. You were saying about freedom of information, sorry? Yeah, it's almost like um, the freedom of having complete information of a, in a situation, right? Um, you have so many countries that, I don't want to name names, but there are many countries that censor a lot or the majority of their internet to their people, you know? Um, you can't have those, they believe you can't have these dangerous ideas um, out into, I guess, the public. And I think just off the top of my head, I can think of China definitely has a firewall. They call it the Great Firewall. Uh, you've got North Korea that's even even further along, where they've basically almost blocked everything that's not North Korean. Um, you've got random um, blocks in, I think, even Indonesia as well. There's definitely a, there's definitely a pattern of uh, this freedom of information being blocked and being told the same rhetoric that your government kind of wants you to hear. Um, which kind of makes sense. It's very nuanced, isn't it? Because you've got these um, f- this fake news that's being spread, um, and you'd think that the government should do something about it, but then once the government goes ahead and pushes its, I guess, agenda of news onto people, um, it suddenly becomes an issue of like freedom of information and being spoon-fed knowledge that isn't true. Yeah, and that I, I suppose that plays into why it's, so immensely difficult i mean thus far to generate an issue that works i mean a solution that works for everybody here no one trusts the government to step in and decide what's true or not because that could very feasibly be a slippery slope take the governments in the arab spring uprisings for instance shutting down people's internet and hacking passwords yeah crazy shall we establish some independent body or do we expect these corporations to start regulating themselves effectively so to that where does that take us 
Right. I mean, go, just going back to you um, talking about corporations like regulating themselves, that sounds like a pretty decent idea. There are definitely different outlets that are trying to, I guess, correct their own news. And it becomes a bit complicated when it comes to social media, right? Because when something's posted on social media, it's not the same as a news outlet where they have to like make sure they can't. Social media companies don't take ownership or publishing rights almost if someone writes something on social media it's not twitter that wrote that on social media but if someone writes something in wall street journal right it's pretty obvious that wall street journal um editors accepted it so it becomes like who's actually in charge of policing this right um and as we spoke the government's not the right fit uh there's been this really interesting thing with twitter have you heard about it recently what's that sorry um, so Twitter recently labeled, uh, according to BBC.com, Twitter recently labels uh, Donald Trump's tweet on, I think, uh, s- some insanely racist tweet um, to be manipulated media. It's actually pretty crazy. So Twitter went above and beyond the government, right? Um, and there was this video where it was showing a black child running away from a white child. Um, with a with a fake caption saying that it was from CNN just to discredit them, um, and just underneath this tweet, um, underneath the president of the United States tweet, uh, Twitter went ahead and threw a little like blue exclamation mark and wrote manipulated media. It's kind of crazy, isn't it? I do believe it's somewhat reasonable, though. I mean, it is. It's completely reasonable, but I mean. <laughs> I like that these outlets are going in there and they're actually correcting the record, right? So I I think that solution could work. I think uh, also via the BBC, uh, Facebook recently removed a Trump ad over a Nazi hate symbol, which is also pretty interesting. So they removed the ad that had a Nazi symbol over it? Yeah, so there's this this, uh, Facebook group or I think a, a Facebook personality called um, Team Trump, which is Donald Trump's campaign team. Um, and it looks like this ad contained an inverted red triangle, similar to that used by the Nazis, to label communists. And Facebook was like, none of that on my platform. We're not distributing this at all. Uh, we don't trust anything that comes along with this ad. So they just axed it. So I think there is definitely an argument to be made that your tech companies and your distributors can be the ones policing fake news. But I guess the question is, right, um, who's right? You know, do you trust Mark Zuckerberg's truth over your own truth? Yeah, I guess we should um, examine their history of, I guess, acting in good faith and whether we believe them to be on the incline in the future. I mean, we have the Cambridge Analytica scandal to consider, among others, and the fact that, I guess, fake news slash disinformation has been allowed to fester on a lot of these platforms for a number of years. Um, so delicate issue, and I think that would be the most ideal solution if they were able to effectively police themselves. And, yeah, I agree with you in that like for Twitter, right? So you become a verified user at some given point and that gives you a bit of basically clout to suggest that, yeah, I am a legitimate representation of this figure and 
maybe a similar thing will come to be with regards to that manipulated video or post um, subtext you were talking about Twitter having added to that falsely represented ad. I guess you've got two types of, I guess, knowledge that I can think of off the top of my head that you can really distribute on these platforms. One being opinion with um, a lot of vagueness and another being an assertion of a fake fact, you know? And I guess that's where you kind of need to be careful with these kinds of things because I can totally see companies following their political agenda just calling stuff fake because it's, I guess, ambiguous. But as long as they stick to, like, I guess, cold, hard facts that you can't really dispute, um, I think that's definitely going to pave the way for a, a nicer a nicer platform and generally a nicer internet, right? So I think perhaps a good way for us to understand better how fake news has surfaced as a very topical issue over the last few years is the concept of a filter bubble. So as defined by internet activist Eli Parisa, a filter bubble is a state of intellectual isolation that allegedly can result from personalized searches when a website algorithm selectively guesses what information a user would like to see based on information about the user, such as location, past click behavior, and search history. As a result of this, users become separated from information that disagrees with their own viewpoints and effectively isolates them in their own cultural or ideological bubbles. That was taken from an article from the Huffington Post titled, Are Filter Bubbles Shrinking Our Minds? in 2016. And so Eli, the individual who coined the term filter bubble, actively seeks out solutions to these issues. And I think we can see a lot of the, I guess, contrarian beliefs that are posed by fake news being supported by the concept of a filter bubble. These days, a lot of people have found themselves in, I guess, microcosms of thought on Facebook and Twitter and YouTube particularly, all of them with their own video selection algorithms that will basically thrust you further down the rabbit hole no matter which side of the political spectrum you belong to. And I guess that just really has evidently stoked the contrarianism of, I guess, real facts versus fake news. Yeah, it's a dangerous environment because uh, these um, platforms at the end of the day, what are they designed to do, right? They're designed to hook you in. They figure out what you like and they give you as much of that as they can to ensure that you spend more time on their platforms. Um, Your time is the most valuable resource for them. So if you're giving them this, they're happy. They can serve you ads, which also link to what you've been looking up. So with ad tracking, there's actually a whole branch in Google uh, on personalized ads. Um, That's how they make their money. So uh, as Google puts it themselves, Personalized advertising is a powerful tool that improves relevance, advertising relevance for its users. Um, So basically, it works by employing online user data to target with more relevant advertising content. And this almost um, makes your filter bubble even stronger because let's say you have a viewpoint 
um, next thing you know, you get advertisements that push your viewpoint even further. So the ads are all about what you want to, like what you have been looking up. And then you've got these YouTube algorithms that are also all surrounding you with things that you're looking up. And eventually they, ideally they just want to serve you more ads and keep you on their platforms. But well, like you said, uh, John, it kind of, it creates this almost like a chasm of what you believe in without much, I guess, disputing information. Yeah. So it basically just reinforces one's beliefs in any particular issue. Um, so if we can, I think Facebook changed its mission statement a few years ago, but uh, from what I can see, they changed it to making the world more open. Oh no, sorry, this is the old mission statement. So making the world more open and connected and by thrusting people into these, I guess, microcosms, I would have to suggest that perhaps they're not really making it more open and that by, I guess, segmenting populations into, I guess, these substrata wherein everyone agrees with one another that's quite the opposite of their original mission statement i guess my question to you is do you think that if they didn't create these bubbles right do you actually think people would be willing to be challenged like that's an argument in itself so i feel like we're very we're very comfortable believing in what we believe in and when we google something we can come across two different sources that we don't agree with and seven different sources that we do at which point we conclude we have to be right regardless of the validity yeah i think so it's an interesting question yeah in, internet activism is i guess obviously important and is very relevant to the arab spring discussion we were having um but I think that it would be pretty tiresome um, having to engage with all these contrarian views to you online. And they probably recognize that early on. And I mean, there's a bit of a stereotype for the kind of person who hangs out on YouTube comments sections, disagreeing with everyone and starting little <laughs> fights. And exactly that would happen much more regularly in situations wherein this filter bubble doesn't really exist. And yeah. I think that in acknowledging that Google decided that users would just have a more positive experience if they're there simply to consume what media they're there for, rather than to engage in bickering and arguments with randoms on the interweb, which is ultimately <laughs> never very rewarding. You can change someone's mind. I won't deny that, but I think... Can you though? Well, can you? I think in a very niche circumstance and I think on the internet... Or, or, <laughs> Has your mind ever been changed? Almost certainly not. I just don't want to make a blanket statement saying that it's impossible to change someone's viewpoint over the internet. It must have happened at some point, but until then... You hope so. <laughs> I don't know. Like, I don't know. Have you seen Reddit, for instance? Um... It's super interesting. So you've got these subreddits of viewpoints, basically, uh, where the whole system is, it, it, let's say you have a particular type of character um, going onto the subreddit. And like, even in business, whenever you market something, you have to think about your target audience. You need to come up with personas of people that would be interested in what you're doing, right? So same way, I'm sure these subreddits have all of these personas and these people usually have very, very similar viewpoints. Sometimes these whole subreddits are based on this viewpoint, right? 
So if you have a contrarian view, even on Reddit, which you wouldn't even think has a special algorithm because they really don't, humans by themselves just end up becoming their own filter bubbles in a way because they just end up downvoting anything that doesn't agree with their viewpoint to all hell, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, well, I guess, yeah, that's a very interesting point. Um, so there's no search algorithm actively directing you to new subreddits i suppose or at least it's not that influential but humans take that position by actively choosing which subreddits they wish to subscribe to and even within the subreddits they choose what to downvote if a if a post has enough downvotes i believe that it just it, one moderators can even remove it right so it's like we can get all upset about this filter bubble, but at the end of the day, if you have someone who's basically a filter bubble themselves just going through comments that don't align to their political views or their agendas and just delete them, I mean, where are you? I mean, I think you've got a human filter bubble living, breathing, eating, sleeping, you know? Um, or even like this mass exodus of like, I don't know, even cancel culture to an extent. I don't know if you've heard of this phenomena. It's actually pretty, pretty interesting. Yeah, cancel culture wherein basically like uh, past crimes or cultural wrongdoings such as, I guess, generally it's like racially insensitive issues, right? That people get called out for in the prior decades and then they get their like comedy careers cancelled or whatnot. Exactly. Or YouTube careers cancelled. So I guess even that in itself, like if we're talking about this informal filter bubble of just human beings just going off uh, just going off these algorithms for a sec, I feel like we've been doing this for a very long time ourselves. Uh, like, I don't know, if you go into, if you go to America, right, you usually have these states called swing states, which can swing the election either way, where people are pretty open-minded. But um, other than swing states, you've got these states that are so ingrained in their ideologies that it's very hard to swing their minds so you have republican states you have i guess democratic i mean democrat states right so it's it's super interesting because i don't know if i don't know if we can completely blame the algorithms for this kind of behavior i mean yes there's a filter bubble but i mean we should take a look at ourselves first before we start blaming the tech yeah that's a actually a great i guess case study for real life filter bubbles occurring without the input of online algorithms and etc um there must be cultural and historical factors at play in those areas so there aren't too many swing states right in the u.s most of them are like blue until the end or fully committed to republican party um and so i guess the takeaway from that is that generally the states do tend towards having a sort of collective idea of mindset yeah yeah definitely it's fascinating so the question is is the filter bubble changing us and changing what we have access to or are we letting the filter bubble give us what we want you know i don't know it's it's an interesting <laughs> one right <laughs> it's very interesting i feel well having discussed that i guess i'm leaning towards it's actually giving us what we desired from the very beginning but it's kind, it kind of becomes an issue when there's a sort of rabbit hole of, I guess, extremist ideology, which is, I guess... Definitely. Completely. The first thing that comes to mind, like alt-right movements on YouTube and Facebook, particularly are the ones that get the most press lately. Or even like alt-left. I feel like there's extremism at every side of every spectrum, you know? 
just the whole idea of distribution. It's it's pretty crazy, and I guess it's gonna really depend on what society and these news platforms collectively believe is, uh, I guess, inappropriate or what we want to filter out. So whatever is not going to get filtered, that's gonna end up there. And in no way am I um am I condoning anything um, that these extreme ends of the spectrum do but it's it's definitely interesting so my question to you is think about an opinion you don't have to say which opinion you have right an opinion that you have very 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 strongly ingrained in your mind something that you think you could never change and let's say there was an online article that had the exact opposite opinion to what you have be honest with yourself would i read it would you click it (laughs) (laughs) um i think it's hard it's hard to be objective in this situation um exactly it's very subjective um exactly it's interesting i don't know you can just think about that you don't have to give me an answer or even if it's halfway convincing like would you click on it i don't, I don't know ethically if you're actually trying to encourage a, a fully rounded discussion of the issue in your mind you should but i can also fully understand you know wanting to distance yourself from the stereotype i was talking about earlier about the youtuber who fights in the comment sections but doing that in articles that challenge your own perceptions which might already be strongly confirmed. Um, maybe you don't need them challenged anymore because you feel comfortable with them at this point. I mean, I think such views do exist among a lot of people, which might be another reason that they're comfortable sitting in these filter bubbles. Yeah, filter bubbles are so interesting, you know. Um, it's kind of like the chicken and egg thing. What came first? the filter bubbles or the human mindset that led to the filter bubbles like i don't know it's i don't know it's really interesting and it links perfectly with fake news well the egg must have come first which means (laughs) that we are the eggs i don't know if you believe so (laughs) nice so i guess if we were to move on from filter bubbles right i guess the question is like can we do better? Do you think that there's a way to move on from these filter bubbles? Like, do you think there's a way that people are going to be inclined to click something else? Like, let's say your algorithm purposely gave you something that it thought you would never want to read. Would you read it? I don't, th- I don't think there's an easy way out of this, you know? I feel like these algorithms are very good at knowing what we want. We're very good at clicking what we want. And both sides are happy. Um, so I guess, I guess that's an open-ended question. I guess, can we do better? Maybe the viewers have an idea. Uh, the listeners, may I Did correct I myself? encourage you all to think long and hard about this. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. So I might just mention examples of a term that was mentioned in the World Economic Forum report I was quoting earlier about digital wildfires, which are basically the concept of digital wildfires, pretty much as it stands, is the concept of a, I guess, something that's probably quite clickbaity. It it inclines people who view it to watch or listen. So it's typically either controversial or 
significant events. So when an example I have here of such a digital wildfire is in 1938, when radio had become widespread, an adaptation of the H.G. Wells novel, War of the Worlds, was being read over the radio and thousands of Americans confused it with real news and jammed police radio like police station telephone lines in the panicked belief that the US had been invaded by Martians. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> what a news story. Yeah, so those are <laughs> what a story. really early days of digital wildfires and I guess it's similar to fake news, but it's not intentional disinformation. And that ties into the discussion of who can be defining what is fake and whether it can actually be tangibly mistakenly fake another example of this is when hurricane sandy battered new york in 2012 an anonymous tweet suggested that the new york stock exchange was flooded by a meter of water it was quickly proven incorrect but too late as it was reported on cnn before it was fact-checked and yeah those are the two prime examples from that report yeah so it's kind of crazy these digital wildfires it um, really makes you think about one, like the whole metaphor of a wildfire. Um, I don't know if, you, um, if you've looked into fires too much, um, but there's also like a rate of spread with fires. Um, I think that's a very, very nice metaphor for that reason. You can kind of think about how this information spreads and how fast it spreads. Maybe that could be a metric for us to be able to identify these things as they crop up. Yes, they may have to be pretty big for us to identify, but I mean, it's a good starting point, right? Right? I have to agree for sure. Very complex issue in policing these wildfires because, I mean, being a digital wildfire doesn't necessarily, by association, make it, I guess, malevolent or fake news, but it could just be a very significant substance, but it, yeah, as you said, might be a significant factor to look into when I guess we're conducting online policing or auditing of news perhaps. Yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely very interesting. And, and like there we go back to the start who, who, who polices it? Who has the metrics to know where, what's a digital wildfire and what's just, you know, just, just a little, I guess, splint going off in a corner? And I feel like that's, that's where these bigger um, social networks that actually have that data are in the best position. And I think it should almost be not just them, but an independent body that is not affiliated with any government. I never thought I'd say that before this presidency. But an independent body that is not affiliated with any government and the social networks working together without making it too much of a bureaucracy where nothing gets done. But yeah, there should definitely be a system there. I definitely see a case for that. Um, Another example I saw in a TED talk from the same person who was describing and coined the term um, filter bubble, Eli Parisa. Um, In one of his TED talks, he was drawing comparisons between social media platforms and tangible real life spaces. So if we think about LinkedIn and how people interact on LinkedIn, 
it kind of reads like a workplace wherein all the participants are wearing suits and they engage formally in a very professional sort of manner. Yeah. Now, if we take that analogy and apply it to Twitter, <laughs> what is that like? <laughs> I don't know. A bunch of people sitting around a fire screaming. <laughs> yeah. Like they're around a fire or the building's on fire. Who knows? Like it's... Yeah, right. It's messy. Screaming at each other. Like a, a, just akin to a loud rabble without structure. There's no cohesion, really. It's just a bunch yeah, of... Well, Differences. I guess the cohesion is the fires being hashtags that you can jump to and yell at everyone and all have the same opinion yelling at each other because we know that we're the only ones that are really listening, right? At which point you're basically not really affecting change. You can just see wildfires getting bigger and bigger. Oh, maybe I shouldn't use the term wildfires, but you know, completely different, but somewhat similar if you think about it. Yeah, absolutely. And um, so Eli compares the built environment of a real life neighborhood to the coded environment that's supplied by these social networks. And basically the crux of his argument is that we need a healthy digital online environment design. What can we learn about real world, healthy space encouragement of discussion that we might apply to the online world? So if we think of real life, like programming and how we improve neighborhoods, it's having a balance, right? So you have playgrounds for kids, you have some bars for rowdy adults, clubs, coffee shops, shopping centers are always nice, parks. Definitely. Greenery, green space generally. And how can we apply similar concepts of balancing to online spaces that encourage, I guess, collectivism, but diversity and thought? But can we though? I mean, with all of these keyboard warriors, I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure you've come across like an odd tweet where you're like, "Who wrote this? This is ludicrous." And then you go on, you're like, "Okay, you, you go on, you go down this rabbit hole. You click their name, you look at their profile picture, and you're like, huh, this is totally a fake account.'" And I mean, is there really a way to have civil structured arguments in these digital places? Like, I love the idea. But the question is, when you give anonymous users this much power to say whatever they want, wherever they want, is there a way to bring structure into that? I mean, the truth is that the whole reason we're in this mess is because... Uh, well, not really a mess, but the whole reason it's structured the way it is is we're giving humans the freedom to speak anything they want with anyone they want in so many different formats without structure, right? Yeah. I guess on on your point there, um, dur- during this discussion, I guess I've actually, <laughs> and the, I bet, yeah, lost faith in the argument that we could learn or that we even want to coexist in this um I guess, macrocosm versus a microcosm so that we have a great diversity of opinions. The chicken chicken or egg example, as you used in your analogy, in that it's a foregone conclusion that we don't want to have these shared opinion spaces. We want these microcosms. We want the filter bubbles. And so... Well, it makes you think, though. Like, like there's no definitive evidence saying that. No, just from, this like, is opinion, what I'm just saying. From, <laughs> yeah, exactly. But just from, like, observation, it doesn't seem like it, does it? It, it seems like we just want to all wave the same flag and just push forward, you know? And who knows where these ideas come from? Yeah. Um, the bubbles are, 
obviously unhealthy for democracy and for having are they though sure well surely two bubbles fighting against each other well i think it just it makes a if you have bubbles fighting against one another it would tend more towards further contrarianism surely i think that it would tend towards compromise because one bubble is going to be really upset until the other bubble changes something surely that's the case unless one bubble is just so small that it's like it's just blowing with the wind while you've got this massive other one which also happens you're right maybe i don't know like we we've we've shifted from like fake news to the whole concept of an ideology right we've shifted from fake news to thinking about how humans fundamentally come up with ideas and how we group up with collective thought and yeah i don't know i feel like these systems are designed with that in mind and my question is would we want to use a system when like i don't know do you know tiktok one of the things that tiktok's known for is its ability to curate stuff that you're actually into and that's why people are using it so much but if tiktok gave you things that you're the the other ideology let's say let's say it was two ideologies in reality it's far more complex than that but let's say someone with a very differing opinion vocalizes that opinion would you actually want to go listen to it or actually would you want to use tiktok anymore you know i don't know if you use tiktok you look like a tiktok kind of guy (laughs) sadly not (laughs) have yet to download it my friend i wouldn't start now it's not looking good (laughs) no cancel culture has gotten to tiktok I don't know if that's it, maybe. (laughs) Definitely. All right, Shabazz, we've touched on a beautiful number of subtopics here. Fake news in the filter bubble, digital wildfires, very expansive topic and very apparent and important issue these days. Do you have any closing remarks? Definitely. Yeah, no, this, this, um, this whole topic's a lot of fun, I guess. It's definitely nuanced. I don't think there are any right answers. I feel like it's one of those gray areas where uh, everyone has an opinion, you know. Um, but it was really fun uh, walking through this minefield with you, John. But yeah, I guess it was a good one. I guess until next time, right? Absolutely. Cheers, Shabazz. Till next time. Take care.